Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU. Indiana is facing an increasing number of residents with HIV. An outbreak in Scott County in 2014 has led to nearly 200 Hoosiers contracting HIV, and a report from this week shows the number of Hoosiers in their 20s with HIV rose by nearly 40 percent between 2010 and 2014. Those numbers are tied to intravenous drug use, particularly through drug abuse of the prescription drug Opana. The state is assisting affected counties by creating needle exchange programs. And today on Noon Edition, we're going to discuss what's next in the battle against HIV in Indiana. We have three guests with us, uh, all in the studio. Greg May is here. (coughs) Greg is the Grants and Data Manager for Centerstone. Kathy Hewitt is the Lead Health Educator and Program Coordinator, uh, Syringe Exchange Program for Monroe County Health Department. And Dr. Carrie Lawrence is with us. She's post, a postdoctoral fellow at the Rural Center for AIDS, STD Prevention, and the Indiana University School of Public Health. If you want to join us today, uh, there are plenty of ways. You can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or uh, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. We've got all that out of the way now. So welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Really happy to have you all here. It's a it's an issue we've, we've talked about a noon edition before, but it just continues to evolve into something different. So um, I want to Turn to Carrie first from the uh, from IU and the, the Rural Center for AIDS and STD Prevention. But um, so, can you give us a little background on you know what happened? I know we we've, we've sort of been over it. I sort of went over it in the mm-hmm. in the intro, but uh, Scott County just sort of blew up and put this on the front pages of all of our newspapers and and the headlines of all of Sarah's newscasts. Um, talk about when this began and and where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, as far as Scott County um, goes, at least from my experience from an outsider looking in, I think that it was, it's a very, a a myriad of issues that were already in place. Um, You know, I think looking at our public health system statewide, um, we just don't invest in public health. So when you look at the prevention side, um, as well as intervention and treatment, um, there was a, a lot of things going on down in Scott County. Plus, it's an area like most rural Indiana, um, where there are still higher rates of unemployment um, and poverty, as well as huge barriers to accessing care and treatment. Um, so it was kind of a um, 
a storm brewing until it finally hit and when it hit and that's kind of the analogy I use because that's what it in my experience working with the community um, down in Austin that was kind of the only way I could describe it um, it was similar to a natural disaster it just kind of came on um, and once it got to the point where it was so big um, you know a lot of damage has occurred um, and so you know, I think we did the best we can with our the response, um, having to get in national partners as well as our Indiana State Department of Health did a tremendous job trying to um, address the outbreak with what the best that they could. Now, if I can follow up just just quickly, and any of you can answer this, but I mean, this isn't just an Indiana problem either. I mean, it's a national problem, Greg. You- yeah, it's 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 very much a national problem. And like Carrie said, you know, there's not a lot of resources or time or attention that are given to prevention related activities. It's it's a really reactive approach. Um, and, you know, it's it's something that's bound to happen if you don't have preventative activities and preventative um education around HIV and substance use and, you know, some of the other issues, Um, not to mention that just the availability that, you know, people have of, you know, prescription drugs that may not be, you know, prescribed to them. You mentioned um, the use of Opana, you know, which is what led to the issue in, you know, Scott County. So it's, it's almost like the perfect storm that's just waiting to happen. And then when that storm happens, what we're finding is that communities are not prepared to have a response. So it's very much a crisis response and, you know, pulling in people like um, the Indiana State Department of Health and other people who can then come to that, um, you know, the aid of that area. So, you, you know, what what we want to do is, you know, really work with communities to have prevention type activities and really build capacity because just because you're not having that conversation in your community, it doesn't mean these issues are not there. Now, I understand this. I mean, this certainly isn't just an issue in Scott County, mm-hmm. but this was a big outbreak that can, we continue to have more cases. So relatively speaking, it is larger than what we're seeing across the country. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was the largest outbreak to happen um, in Indiana's history. So um, and I think for, um, you know, currently we still we the number is at 188. Right. Um, they discovered um, four more cases that were a contact of uh, former cases. So mm-hmm. it's still going on. But just slowed down. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the other thing that was kind of taken back for me is is growing up in Indiana and knowing the story of Ryan White and and kind of his name is attached to federal funding for HIV resources. <clears throat> yet this is what happened in Indiana. Um, so I think what, you know as as Greg was saying, you know, we really just didn't have the not only the emergency preparedness that we do for other types of natural disasters, but we didn't have any, like a really strong system in place to develop prevention, successful prevention. Um, And it was a, I think we were looking at it from an angle of substance abuse, um, which normally we were, I think the, the common narrative around HIV was looking at sexual transmission. So, um, then you also have these new uh, sectors that are needing to collaborate and work together, such as law enforcement, mental health, you know, our criminal justice system, as well as public health um, and health services, all having to kind of pull together where they may or may not have interacted as frequently in the past to address these type of issues. 
mean, you mentioned that there was this perfect storm brewing, but like you were just alluding to this fact that it, this wasn't something that was sexually transmitted really in this case, this was done through drugs. So was there a way to really predict that we would end up in this place? I guess this is this is new in that regard. It's more new in that regard. It, HIV, the bigger outbreaks have always been sexually um, transmitted, but in this one, it was the injectable drugs. Um, so I think it snuck up on a lot of people, as well as you know our disease intervention specialists. There is just like one per 12 counties in most cases, or two per 12 counties. So they have a lot of area to cover and a lot of work. Um, so we're just starting our conversation today, and we've got we got a lot of ground to cover on uh, HIV in Indiana. So if you want to give us a call and get in on the on the conversation early. Feel free to call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. Or you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. Or you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I know we're going to get uh, a lot of uh, – we're going to have a lot of conversation here about things, so I want to get that in early. Kathy, so the uh, needle exchange program in mm-hmm. Monroe County began this weekend, and I have to say – you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, how quickly education has had to come uh, along with this issue. Because if we had been talking about a government-supported and government-funded needle exchange program in Indiana two years ago. Well, I don't think we would have been talking about it two years ago. So can you talk about about the program and why it's, why it's important to have in place? Okay. Uh, first of all, it is not government-funded. Okay. Um, there Thank has you. Thank you for been that. a long-term ban both on federal and state funding to do needle exchanges. Mm-hmm. The, f- the federal just lifted their ban, but it hasn't trickled down yet through the state. Um, after the Scott County outbreak, um, the governor <coughs> did approve um, needle exchanges in counties, but there had to be certain circumstances that counties had to meet. You either had to have prove an outbreak of hepatitis C or an outbreak of HIV. Uh, we were able to prove that we had an outbreak of hepatitis C um, and show all those numbers and finally, through a long process, get our county uh, syringe exchange approved. Um, so it was a process. It wasn't just, yes, you can do this. Right, we had, we had right. to meet some very high standards. So, so how is it funded? I'm sorry? How is it funded? Right now, we are very, very fortunate. We have a non-for-profit um, organization that really wants to do this and has raised a lot of money on their own by getting grants. We were also able to get a grant from the Indianapolis AIDS Foundation. Okay. So how how does it work? I mean, who who's eligible to come in and, you know, bring in needles, exchange it for clean needles? How how does, and I know you just started last Sunday, correct? We just started last Sunday, but right. anybody at this point is eligible to come in. Um, so they can They'll talk to a counselor there, and it's all confidential. The information is kept private, but they can get what they need and what they ask for as far as needles or other types of works. Um, they also do referrals if wanted to treatment services or other social services if they have a need for it or try to get them um, insurance if they need that as well. So it's more than just come in, get needles, and bring your old needles and leave. It's more of a holistic um, harm reduction type atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And when, I, when I made the comments about how, you know, I don't, didn't think that a couple of years ago we've been talking about this in Indiana, I think that there's a stigma that's attached to an intravenous drug user, and I think that's where some of the education has to come in to say, well, if not, 
if not this, then what? So um, what, was, what was your experience around that first weekend? How many people did come in? I think they had um, about 25 the first week, which seems slow, but that's actually, I think, a really good number for the first week. Um, they gave out between 900 to 1,000 needles, and they got around 600 back. So I think that's an excellent first week. Okay. So it'll just grow as people learn about it more and learn to trust more. This is a population that, um, as you have said, have had a stigma about them for a long time. So they're not all that open you know, to walking up and just entering. So it's going to take a little time to build higher, but we're really pleased. Okay. Do you have any sense of how the one is working in Scott County? Because they were mm-hmm. the first, and if we're talking about the number of cases, four mm-hmm. more, but much better. I mean, what what impact is this having when we're looking at those numbers? Well, again, you're, um, I think Scott County is unique in that because of the outbreak, um, they had a lot more help developing, and they had to put it together quickly, so they were had advice from the CDC. Um, and if you remember, our governor first passed their kind of syringe or gave approval for their syringe exchange program because of the outbreak and it was going to be temporary and then Mm -hmm. it got extended um, before we got the the legislation passed um, to allow all counties in Indiana to propose, you know, have a proposal um, for a program. Um, I, you know, in a perfect world, they have a a model um, in the sense that it is a one-stop shop. Um, meaning that they have, you know, service providers kind of rotating in and out. So, and that's an ideal situation is, and, and I think Monroe County is is modeled very well like that because there's a lot of partners involved because there's long evidence that demonstrates that because of this stigmatized kind of disenfranchised population of injection drug users, um, you know, a syringe access program or syringe exchange program kind of provides that linkage to care and services um, for detox, for treatment, for HIV testing, hepatitis C testing, um, where, again, with going with what Kathy said, once that trust is built, now you have the availability of, of getting people the help that they need. Um, and what amazes me about the organization, the Indiana Recovery Alliance, that that kind of oversees our syringe exchange program here is that they address some of those other social determinants, making sure that people have the basic needs, food, clothing, um, some of the things that, you know, they're really kind of filling in the gaps that wasn't there um, for this this population of folks. They spent um, the year prior to the syringe exchange <coughs> opening actually building rapport with this population and, and meeting those basic needs, you know, collecting and doing drives for coats and for um, supplies like soap, shampoo, socks, you know, just even basic things. So. Something I want to throw out to all of you is we're talking about more cases than the largest outbreak in Indiana history, but has the treatment really caught up with the demand at this point, needle exchange just being one part of that? You know, I think as far as access to um, behavioral health services goes, that um, access has improved and it's easier for people to, you know, access um, services once um, once a need has been identified. But as Kathy and Carrie have said, it's it's that trust, and um, you know there are a lot of people who have not had um, good experiences with the system. So if there is just a provider in the county, um, and they've you know say here in Monroe County they've you know 
not had a good experience previously, they're going to be less likely to come back. So they're going to use those other resources that that are available. So um, you know, if if treatment providers are then able to you know partner. Um, with those who are operating the needle exchange, you know, then they can kind of see how that service delivery happens, and it, it just kind of becomes seamless rather than having to, you know, walk into, um, you know, a place like Centerstone and say, "Hey, I need help." Um, you know, as as we've talked about, there's so much stigma that's associated, um, you know, with HIV and IV drug use and um, mental health conditions and substance use disorders that that I believe that that prevents a lot of people from coming in and saying, "I need help." I think a big thing that will help too is the Affordable Care Act. A lot of um, this community who didn't have insurance before now can get insurance mm -hmm. and actually access services. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's still some okay. structural barriers. And again, I want to emphasize the unique needs of rural communi or communities. Um, even in Austin, I mean, the great thing is is that. Um, service organizations like Centerstone have been able to provide some outreach services, but they're still have you know we still have 92 counties. Um, and when I think of my prior work um, with folks in rural Indiana, you know transportation barriers. Um, it's like the services are there, but can I get to them? Um, so even with with kind of the social. Um, structure, you know, barriers as well N with the stigma. There's a matter of like, you know, can I, does the service, is it available with on the bus system or is there a bus system to, to even access um, or do they have um, hours that are non-traditional nine to five where I work during that time and cannot take off work to go to a, a counseling appointment? That, that, that's an excellent point, Carrie. I was in Scott County yesterday and we were talking about the lack of, uh, the lack of available transportation to help people get to and from those follow-up um, appointments that are really essential so that they get that comprehensive care that they need. And also, you know, businesses operating in that kind of nine to five schedule for the people who are working um, that have to take any job they can get, you know, because of where they are they're typically working during those hours. So there's no, you know, evening um, or weekend availability for people to, you know, access services. Can we talk about the, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the stigma of uh, intravenous drug use involved, like people in the city, you know, urban people. And this has kind of become a rural issue. How did it, I mean, how did it sort of transform into the rural areas? Well, I, I don't know that there's like a, a one answer for that because I think that um, it probably has all, you know, in some form existed. I mean, I think for me back when I was going, working in social services actually with Kathy, that, you know, at the time we saw methamph the methamphetamine capital was Green County. So I think substance abuse has always been an issue in every community. I think oftentimes in urban settings, there's a lot more resources to not only track the use, but also like engage in some sort of preventative or intervention effort. Um, in rural counties, it's hidden. And until something like this happens, you don't necessarily know because you might be on that 200 acre plot of land or in the hills of Orange County where there is something going on, but unless it's publicly known, um, we just don't know. Um, it's more hidden. And I think they've even seen um, as our kind of neighbor, Kentucky, has, like 
moved their legislation fast after the outbreak, but especially Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia are still struggling majorly with the heroin epidemic that continues. Now, we haven't even talked about that yet. Um, ours started with Opana and all the prescription drugs. Now, heroin has really skyrocketed, um, mainly because, one, it's so much cheaper than the opiates that they had, and two, um, the service industry that provides the heroin has stepped up substantially. They're now delivering. Um, so it's made it even easier to get. So mm-hmm. it's no wonder that we're seeing outbreaks and higher use. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned hepatitis C and how right. that's how Monroe County was able to get its needle exchange. Can you explain the connection between hepatitis C and even HIV and how those two are related? Um, the most basic is that both of them are transferred by blood contact. Um, when they, with the outbreak in Scott County, they found that um, with, if people had hepatitis C, it was almost an indicator that they were HIV positive as well. And we know that anybody who is HIV positive, who um, also uses HIV drugs, it's 80% likely to have hepatitis C. So it just seems like it, it's pretty predictable that they're going to go closely together. So Monroe County has this really high number of hep C. So then are the, do those folks also get tested for HIV or what is, how does that work? We haven't done all the testing, but okay. we strongly encourage anybody who mm-hmm. has positive, hep, or positive for hepatitis C to also get tested as well for HIV. But that's one thing that we are trying to prevent is an outbreak of HIV by doing the needle exchange and stepping up the education because that's part of what this component is. It's we're trying to educate the population and <coughs> so is Carrie and you know, Project Cultivate, mm-hmm. trying to get a lot of education out there about the risk and what you can do to prevent it. We got a question from a caller who was asking, how do the syringe exchange programs work in terms of the criminalization of drugs? Um, best. Can you help us with that one? Um, what the state law says is that the police cannot target anybody who um, is registered with the needle exchange, so they can't sit out front and target it and then arrest them. That doesn't mean that if they are found with drugs on them, they can't be arrested. So they can have a clean needle from the needle exchange if they're registered, but and they can't they can't arrest somebody who is even go you know accessing any of the services at the syringe exchange program. But um, that being said, I think you know we 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 can't necessarily change some of the existing laws re- regarding the criminalization of you know illicit drugs. But I think. What is important is that as the syringe exchanges are being planned out, and now we're up to 24 counties at some part of the process. Either they're, we've been tracking that um, uh, through the for, through Project Cultivate. Um, so counties that are just talking about it, and they've called us to get more information to like Monroe County, they already have it going on and they've already been providing services. And one thing that we encourage every community that's even thinking about it is making sure you have all of those partners at the table. Um, And one of our, we we can begin because Project Cultivate is a collective, one of our state partners is the State Sheriff's Association because we recognize in Indiana Legal Services of the legality aspects. And so get, getting the these different sectors who may, be, may or may not have convened um, towards a, an effort of public health um, all at the table to, to map out what that 
should look like. Um, I can tell you from, and this was, this I've heard this a lot of times, is from law enforcement that we can't arrest our way out of this problem. And, and one of the other kind of angles of all of this, not only looking at the d- disease prevention, but the economic impact um, and the economic, uh, I guess, consequences. Uh, I think just, you know, the lifetime of medical costs for a person with HIV, living with HIV is between two hundred and thirty to three hundred thousand dollars. I've got even more than that. I've got mm-hmm. four hundred thousand to six hundred thousand uh-huh. yeah. dollars for a lifetime. Yeah. So I mean, this isn't about um, the legal issues. It's about saving lives. Mm-hmm. And, it is and about public saving health. lives. Right. Right. But there still has to be some legislation <clears throat> done. Yeah. It's still a little confusing. Even though they can't arrest somebody with a needle who's a member on the books, there's some still some laws that say it's illegal to have a syringe. So there's a uh, some gray area that's going to have to be taken care of at the state level. So, Okay, we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, we're talking about uh, HIV in Indiana, and we've just spent a few minutes talking about the needle exchange programs. Uh, we have three guests with us in the studio, Kathy Hewitt, uh, the lead health education and program coordinator in the syringe exchange program uh, for the Monroe County Health Department, Dr. Carrie Lawrence, postdoctoral fellow with the Rural Center for AIDS STD Prevention and the IU School of Public Health, and Greg May, grants and data manager for Centerstone. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. I uh, just introduced our guests right before we went uh, to our break. Kathy Hewitt, Dr. Carrie Lawrence, and Greg May are all here with us talking about HIV in Indiana, and, uh, pre- prevention, and uh, ways to prepare, prepare to prepare for the issues that we're facing and ways to treat the issues that we're facing. If you want to give us a call, to join our conversation, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of Bloomington. And you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And Carrie, before we went to break, you said something about 24 counties going through the process in some way to get a needle exchange. But we've said that it's local support or foundations that are funding them. So mm-hmm. once there's... N- you know, if the cases start to level off, is there going to be as much interest to fund these on a private level? I guess. Um, I think I think what's going to be kind of fascinating, and I think this is the kind of the the 
main question that a lot of folks have is around um, the fact that, yes, the federal ban has been lifted, which means the state could apply for resources at a federal level that won't necessarily fund the needles themselves, but may be able to help with some of the, the services that are being provided. Um, and so I think that knowing that our, our state does not access the federal dollars that are available for these types of public health programs. I think that's a greater question for Indiana, um, is why not? Um, and especially for some of these more rural counties, for instance, I'm working with Brown County, who really, really is trying to get things going over there um, and figuring out a strategy that will work uh, for them. Uh, and I think that how, that's been an ongoing question is how do we pay for it? How do we pay for it? And I think right now it's kind of with scotch tape and shoestring that we're trying to make it work the best we can. Um, and so there, that has to be a question, I think, for your representatives at a state level. Like we need them. We need to be able to provide adequate services and knowing that this is an evidence based model to disease prevention as well as linkage to a variety of services for um, a stigmatized and disenfranchised population, we need the money. Where's the money? Because even when the legislation passed, which was a tremendous uphill battle, and I think we've even seen this with naloxone, which is another key factor that that was important. Um, and really, we had some great champions out there to, to address that as uh, overdose issues as, as well. Um, is how are we going to make this a sustainable model? Because right now we're doing the best we can with nothing. Um, so I think that's a, a bigger question, I think, for local residents um, and to, to asking, like, you know, how are you know, we need we need to have the the necessary resource to keep this going so that we ensure the safety and well-being of the public. Well, and I'll go ahead, Kathy. Right now, too, we have to apply every year. Um, so there's still questions about that. Do we have to prove that we still have the epidemic going? Is there still a need for it? So as you say, if numbers drop, will um, the program still be approved? So that's a question for our state representatives as well. Yeah, this, um, I'm not going to do justice to the conversation, but Senator Joe Donnelly was in, in town this week, and he talked about federal legislation about these issues. And he sponsored one bill, and there was a second bill in the Senate, and they've been merged together that would address five or six of these issues, and it just cleared the, I think, Judiciary Committee last week. So are, you, you're kind of nodding. So are you familiar with this uh, national legislation and, and what it could do to help? Well, even if the, the even if the federal legislation where there's funding attached is available, we still as a state have to want to access it. We still have we our state need would have to, you know, de apply for that funding mechanism so those dollars could be drawn down to Indiana. Um, and kind of also going off with Kathy, it's interesting because in um, a, a current conversation with Scott County, that question about the reapplication process was a question that they were curious about. So I contacted the Indiana State Department of Health, and as of a week ago, they didn't actually have what that looks like yet. So they haven't developed that, that process, those processes in place 
yet. Um, that may have changed. I haven't followed up with them recently, but that is a question. Um, and I think another thing that needs to be addressed, especially with our low resource counties across Indiana, is that you have to you have to prove that you have either hepatitis C or an HIV, you know, public health emergency. Um, however, to do that, being able to increase your testing to make that case, or what does that really look like? And, you know, it's a little bit ambiguous, um, and there's a lot of effort and energy that, you know, resources, especially for these smaller health departments, are having to be allocated for even just the the their human capital to have that conversation, develop that case, convene partners, you know, put that their system as best they can in place, then put the proposal forward and wait for it to get approved or, you know, address the, you know, maybe there's some issues that the state wasn't quite satisfied with, so having to kind of tweak things again to get it moved forward. So there's a lot of time, energy, and resources that just go into the, the proposal development. Um, on top of figuring out, okay, and now what? Uh, so, yeah. And then working to keep that momentum going because, as you mentioned before, if these people haven't worked together previously, you know, these community entities, there's there's a lot of stress and tension that go into, you know, these conversations. Despite it being a public health emergency, and we've acknowledged that, sometimes people just don't want to be a part of it anymore <laughs> and will drop out of the conversation. And they may have been a valuable part of that team, and now you have to work to find somebody else to take that person's place. Mm -hmm. I'm getting hung up on you saying you have to prove there's a problem first, because yep. in that way it still seems like this is a reactionary approach, in my opinion. Yes, I think I think so. Um, in a sense, and I and I don't necessarily would say that's a um, a bad thing because I think there's a lot a huge learning curve even to our community at large of what are the benefits of syringe access and why do we need them and do we have the need for them so I think there you know it's somewhat reactionary but I think there's still that mis understanding of what syringe access and syringe exchange like the public benefit you know that it, there's a huge in, environmental benefit because we don't see as many syringes that are just left in public spaces. Um, not to mention the public health benefit, the direct public health benefit of, of reducing disease transmission as well. So, you know, we had to move things very, you know, as very quickly with not any resources. So I think it's, you know, if we had the perfect system with lots of funding behind it, how much Edu public education and awareness we could provide up front, but instead we're working with what we have. Yeah. Is, is, there a, is there a place you're looking, a state you're looking at that has handled this really well that you're saying if we could, if we could only do that or model our program after that? Yeah, I think actually um, and we have a great partnership with the National Harm Reduction Coalition, which is based in New York City, who they've been doing this for a long time, as well as Oakland, California. In fact, they've been providing a, a huge amount of technical assistance and training for Indiana counties who are looking at syringe exchange. Um, in fact, they've been coming and they'll be coming down um, providing a four-day training on best practices around harm reduction strategy, which, you know, in saying that harm reduction is, you know, syringe access or syringe exchange is just one component. Um, you know, as Kathy said, Having testing and prevention and linkage to services is really essential as well. 
Um, so, you know, however that needs to, to look. Um, so I think that, you know, they do have that evidence. And so not only has New York been doing this a long time, but uh, even the, the person who will be here was running a syringe exchange in the UK um, that has been at this for years um, and has seen the public benefit to it. Uh, so I think that we kind of see what is working in other places, but we also need to recognize that each individual community is unique and we have to address the needs of the, the unique community and the, the people of those communities. All right, our phone numbers again are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area, and you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition or follow us on Twitter at noon edition. A um, couple questions come to mind. Um, one is about the, the economic aspects of this issue, and I don't mean how much we're spending on it. I guess I mean the socioeconomic aspects of this. Is is that an element, particularly in the re, the uh, rural areas, is poverty uh, leading to a lot of um, maybe? You know, I think early on we th- thought about you know poverty, hopelessness, bad state of the economy was leading to a lot of this intravenous drug use. Um, it, I guess I just want some reaction to that. Is that still an issue? Well, I think as far as the heroin epidemic has gone, and I think we saw this with some of the legislation around the naloxone and, and syringe exchange, um, and and I think that it, that actually doesn't have any socioeconomic barrier. You know, like it, it kind of has affected various um, income brackets, uh, and so I think that you know. What what it really means for at least my perception is that we just don't have the infrastructure in place to address some of the the needs that surround um, injection drug use. Mm-hmm. So as well as the education and prevention efforts. Yeah, you know the the education and prevention efforts. There's there's just not a lot of time or resources that. Um, go to that. Um, we are fortunate enough at Centerstone to have been awarded a federal grant that's going to work on prevention of HIV, substance use disorders, and viral hepatitis C um, among adolescents and young adults who are in that 13 to 24 um, year old age range. And that's that's a program that's going to be here in Monroe County. And we're, we're really excited about that to actually have money to do prevention-related activities. Um, the unfortunate thing is um, Centerstone and this program in Monroe County is the only um, Indiana agency that's been federally funded to do prevention activities. So when you think of the need um, and, you know, sort of the rules around federal funding, since this is in Monroe County, you know, we can only use this program here. But we really hope to develop a model, you know, that's that's um, comprehensive and, you know, proven to be effective so that we can replicate that in other communities um, and, you know, possibly even share it with others in the nation. Uh, the other question I wanted to ask, really, and I know none of you are, are medical doctors on our on our panel, but uh, you know, HIV and hepatitis C, the uh, the illnesses, you know, it used to be maybe what a decade, two decades ago, HIV was considered this life sentence, and mm-hmm. it was a, a horrible, horrible situation. Hepatitis C, we've seen a lot lately. There are new treatments for it, but there. Hugely expensive, and, and I guess I wanted to to get again the, a, sort of a status report 
on these diseases and how serious they are now, if, if you feel comfortable answering that question? Well, I think that at least with HIV, we're seeing it seen as a chronic condition. In fact, I had, um, uh, when I was doing some community meetings um, with the Department of Health and Human Services, the Minority Health Office, one of the, the points that their representative brought up was now we see the graying of HIV because it people are living longer. Um, and so when you factor in the lifetime costs associated with a chronic disease, um, I think that that's something that is an important um, point to bring up mm -hmm. because that, you know, I think that as a, it, the CDC had brought up kind of the associated lifetime costs for just the outbreak itself um, was going to exceed $100 million. Um, so when we think about what, what are, what we should be doing now, yeah. um, because we can't move, we can't change the past. We only can move forward, but what our pathway is going to look as far yeah. as moving forward. The other thing that I would add is even though HIV is seen as, as a more chronic condition that is treatable and, um, hepatitis C, um, you know, can be treated um, and in some instances cured, people don't have the education around that and they still have, um, you know, that, that old time thinking or stigma that this is a death sentence. So it's, it's common that people go in for the initial test, they get the initial result and there's no follow-up care. Right, um, well also you have to be willing to enter into care and take the medicine for it to become that chronic disease. Right. Right. I mean, you've right. got to be engaged and a lot of people, it's hard to keep them engaged and then, the consistent care right. to stay well. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. so this week we saw the numbers reported that the <clears throat> increase 40% among folks in their 20s. So can we expect those people to live, you know, normal, quote unquote, normal lives? And I, if they're getting they treated. They to participate in care, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mostly, right. I think it, it, they say that it might be just a little less than normal, but mostly an average lifespan. So. Well, I think uh, the other part about that survey that I thought was interesting, and maybe you can, can help me make sense of it, or maybe it's just a, a little blip, but 40% uh, uh, increase from tw 2010 to 2014 among the 20s, people in their 20s, but an 11% decline from people in their 30s. Is that a meaningful statistic, do you think? That people maybe grow out of this idea or, or, or what? Well, I think what's interesting about, and I was listening to that that conversation yesterday, um, is that I don't I don't think we can really pinpoint the answer why. There's a lot of hypothesis as to why that is, but I don't think we necessarily know quite yet why that is. Um, other than, I mean, if you even think about just the from a life course perspective, that that the tw twenty age bracket are are a little bit. Um, you know, there's still that emerging adulthood is still oftentimes higher at risk for yeah, certain behaviors. The brain is still developing. Yeah, 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 I was gonna say, and yeah, there's they're so not an excuse not to go to class, but um, I think that uh, you know, I think that that we don't quite know the answer yet to that. I think, and then as far as seeing the the less incidents in that 30 age year old age bracket. Um, again, I think if we look at just kind of risky behaviors in general, you've kind of moved away from that that area. 
And okay. there's a lot of different reasons too. You know, lots of different types of people. So. Right. And I, and as we're on age, I was also struck by what Greg said about, um, I guess, starting prevention and tr- educational efforts at age 13. Sure. And, you know, some would argue that that should be started um, even before then. It's it's best to start prevention activities before um, someone is offered drugs. Um, and there's plenty of research currently that shows people are using drugs at the age of 13. Um, so, you know, I agree with you in that 13 is young, but if you're being offered drugs at 13, maybe prevention should start at 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. We've seen the types of drugs people use change so frequently, too. So, you know, I, I have to say, so if police start really, really cracking down on heroin, are we, you know, we might switch to something else. And if it's not injectable, what does that mean? Which is an excellent point. So not only do the drugs change so frequently that it's hard to keep up with, it's very uh, unique and specific to the community that you're in and what's available there mm-hmm. and the um, socioeconomic climate of, of, of that community. Mm-hmm. Um, people tend to go with what's cheapest. Mm-hmm. All right, we have about uh, seven or eight minutes to go, so if you want to join the conversation, there is still time, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 outside of Bloomington. The live chat is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Well, I think um, back to to Kathy and the specific needle exchange program here. So, um, again, I guess I'm curious: Are you keeping what kind of data are you keeping on the on people who come in? Is there any demographic data that you're able to? If we keep, keep demographic, it's just <clears throat> basic like uh-huh. age, race, gender. Um, so nothing identifiable. Right. Um, the basic data that we need to send to the state that the Indiana Recovery Alliance, who is the agency that we're contracted with, is collecting is needles in, um, needles out, and um, zip by, by zip code, as well as any successes or challenges it's, is the basics. Um, they also want to know, you know, basically, like, have you referred anybody to treatment, all that type of thing, social service as well, just so we can have an idea of how it's working and, and what's going on. Okay. I've looked at the data just, you know, even in other countries, and there are certain subsets of the population more likely to to get HIV. Is the same, can the same be said here in Indiana in terms of specific people who might, who are more likely to contract this? I mean, we've seen it in a rural area now, but I mean, is... Well, I think the social determinants, and I think you see this internationally, and, you know, when thinking about harm reduction and syringe exchange, there's an international organization like I, we've seen a lot of data come out of India and some other countries around their efforts. But I think, you know, some of those social determinants like socioeconomic status or poverty, um, as well as just access to resources. Um, and then from in thinking about the drug of choice, the market, um, you know, like Kathy was saying earlier, heroin is cheap. Um, and people, I remember someone asking me, so how do you, how do they get heroin? How does, well, we forget that that's a, a highway, 65 runs right up through. We have 70, which was, you know, Fayette County was another county that was early on moving towards this effort too, because they were seeing a rise in their hepatitis C rates, you know, 
it gets to the, the, the accessibility of the of these substances as well as the risky behaviors when someone's under the influence, um, including the profession of just sex work in general. Um, so I think there's a lot of, again, this complexity to it. There's not one thing that drives it, but a multitude. And it's having that recipe that everything just kind of works together. And then we are faced with some of these challenges. You know, we're sitting here on a university campus, so I, I can't help but ask, you know, we see a lot of issues that involve drugs and drug use that are kind of unique to universities. This doesn't seem to be that way. Is that, where do universities, university students fit into, you know, the issues when we're thinking about the overall issue of, um, you know, the drug abuse, uh, the intravenous drug abuse that's leading to these higher numbers of HIV and Pepsi. It's a good question. Yeah, it's 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 a good question. Um, you know, in the grant um, that that we've been funded for um, at Centerstone, I've, I, I mentioned previously that it's people who are in the age group of 13 to 24. Um, and actually, the the largest group of that target population is the 18 to 24 um, year old group, which is about 86 percent of the. Um, people that we will serve during the course of the grant. So I can't speak to the specifics about drug use here on the IU campus, but I can say that we really will be working to make sure that um, we're giving people that preventative uh, information and that education so that they can go forward and make uh, choices, yeah, good choices. I, I think the question was sort of, you know, when you're talking about, you know, different um, kinds of drugs for different groups of people mm -hmm. and whatnot, I think on the IU campus, and this will probably get me in a lot of trouble, but I think a few years ago, uh, you know, cocaine was seen as a big problem here. You know, marijuana is always a big problem here. I know heroin is a problem mm -hmm. here, but, you know, is it more of a problem in a, you know, campus set setting than other places? Well, and I think that question would be more targeted towards, I mean, we luckily here at Indiana University, we have <coughs> Oasis. Mm -hmm. Um, and Jackie Daniels does a wonderful job of education as well as helping students who need help around yeah. substance use. Um, and then I think in regards to disease prevention, um, we are so fortunate to have a fantastic student health center. And Kathleen Hardy, who is the director of health and wellness, I know they do sexploration and there's a lot of outreach and education around safe sex practices. So I think, you know, I think that we have those resources and they would probably be able to give you a better indication of okay. what that looks like now. Okay. I appreciate it. Uh, we're about out of time, so I want to thank you all for being here. It's been an enlightening discussion. It's a really serious issue, and, and I appreciate all the work that all of you are doing on it. I know Sarah does, too. Um, so our guests today have been Kathy Hewitt and Dr. Carrie Lawrence and Greg May. Uh, Sarah Whitmire has been my co-host. For producers J.D. Gray and Sophia Salaby, engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, 
Addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. <laughs>